Well, good morning again. It's great to see you all. Thank you for gathering here this morning, and thank you for uh, bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And my name is Jamie. It's my absolute privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And uh, before we get into things th- this morning, as it's uh, a family-style service, all right, I wanted to uh, recognize those that are joining us uh, th- this morning. We've got our elementary-age kids. So if you are an elementary-age kid that normally isn't here for this part of the service, will you stand a second? Let's, let's say thanks to these folks for being here. All right, it's so good to see you guys. We're really, really grateful that you guys are, are here. And one of the beautiful things, all right, um, is that, yes, there's opportunity for you all to kind of see like, hey, here's what it looks like when the adults gather in worship and the teaching that takes place here and sort of seeing yourself as part of uh, the bigger church, the broader church, which you are. But I want you to hear this as well. If you're an elementary age kid, you're also in here to teach us, to instruct us. You have a joy, you have an enthusiasm that sometimes as adults, unfortunately, can kind of just, we lose sight of that. All right, I was reminded of that this a couple nights ago, just seeing some kids out, right, just kind of playing and there was like this marveling that was taking Taking place, all right, and it's this thing that you guys showcase to us, like, wow, it's this amazing gift that we get to be together as this church family to be able to gather and to be able to worship Jesus as we sing songs and as we open up God's word. So, thank you for teaching us this morning as well. And so, I get the privilege of uh, getting us into the book of Ecclesiastes, all right. And so, we are continuing the, this particular series here um, that uh, reminds us of. How we're to navigate, it instructs us on how to navigate this complex world. And so maybe you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe you're new to it, maybe this is your first Sunday here, but I think you'll be able to see right away that it just, it's just this honest depiction of the complexity that sometimes things in life are happening, you're like, man, this seems to be just moving, kind of clicking along, and then sometimes you're like, wait, what in the world is actually going on? What is happening? And so... Uh, This book helps us sort of navigate that space. And so what I want to invite you to do is turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to look at this whole chapter this morning. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, there are some paperback Bibles that are on the back tables. You're welcome. Get up, grab one of those, and the passage can be found on page 620. It'll begin on page 620. The other option that you always have is go to cpwp.life on your phone. Swipe over the second card, it'll say message notes. And so the the items, the the words, the things that are up on the screen this morning, including the text that will be in, is listed there. There's space. You can actually hit the button that says add notes and take some notes and email them to yourself afterwards. And so we're going to dive into this, and I'm going to read a longer section in a moment, but I just want to start with the very first verse of chapter 8. And it's up here on, on the screen. It says this, the teacher, the one writing this, Many regard this to be King Solomon, all right, kind of looking back on his life and pondering all the, the wisdom that he has, and the, the, but the ways that he's, the shortcomings and the failures and just the complexity that is life, not just thousands of years ago, but also here this morning, like you feel that, you brought that in this morning. And he poses this question, he says, and who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? kind of just pondering he's looking out and he's like who actually knows anything like who can interpret the times can anyone make sense of what is happening and you've probably felt that in various ways this week you don't have to do much other than probably turn on the tv or open your phone and go to a news app or maybe you didn't even go to the news app but the notifications just started flying at you that there's this thing to pay attention to and there's this catastrophe and there's this trial and tribulation all these things and like how do we actually even interpret it can there be 
Can we make any sense of it? And so who knows the interpretation of a thing? But then the teacher says this, and here's what I wanna focus in on this morning. There's this invitation that says, a man's wisdom, so when we actually do acquire wisdom, all right, it makes his face shine, that there's this radiance. And maybe you've been around a person like this. You know they're not perfect, they don't have everything all put together, but there is this stability, there's this, uh, they're like a rock in many ways. They, they have this, this wisdom, maybe it's even beyond their years and experience, but man, you're in their presence and you can just tell there's a radiance. They are radiating the truth of who they are in Christ. There's a stability that they have. They're not tossed back and forth by the circumstances as they change. And you're like, man, I wanna be around people like that and how do I become that kind of person? So chapter eight of Ecclesiastes, I think it's gonna help uh, in that journey. How do we become that type of person that radiates, right? His man's wisdom makes his face shine. It says, and the hardness of his face is changed. And maybe on the flip side, you've experienced the other, right? That there's this sort of sour or this dour kind of look. And there's this, man, this person has just endured so much of life that they've become cynical and jaded. They've lost sort of hope and perspective. And maybe that's not just someone out there. Maybe that's like, yeah, that's me. That's how I feel this morning. And so what would it look like to have your face, my face, our countenance move from this dour to an actual delight. And that doesn't mean we say everything in the world is just perfect, but we delight in who Jesus is, that he is sovereign, that he is good, despite what the circumstances might communicate to us. So what could that actually look like? It reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse five says this, those who look to him are what? Are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. But when we feel shame, we tend to, to cower, we wanna hide, it's fig leaf stuff of Genesis three. We don't know if we can really be known, but when we look to God, there's this invitation, there's this promise, there's this reminder that it's in that place that we learn wisdom, that our faces move from this dourness to this delight, that there's a radiance that we are invited into. And there's not this shame. It's like, no, I can be in the presence of God, not because I'm awesome, but because Jesus is awesome and he's made a way for me. Paul picks up these themes, 2 Corinthians chapter three. He says this in verse 18, it says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Think about that. So the mask is gone, the veil is gone. We have this opportunity to behold the glory, the majesty. We get to marvel at who the Lord is. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That there's this invitation that the Lord wants to make you more into his image and likeness, to make you like his son, that you might radiate the glory of God. But did you notice the language? From one degree of glory to another. Well, you move the dial one degree. It is small, it is incremental. We want the quick fix. All right, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. We live in that sort of like, let's just microwave this thing. Let's turn this up on high. Can we skip a bunch of steps, kind of clicks on the dial, but no. One degree of glory to another. And be encouraged in this. The Lord is at work. You might doubt that, but he has you here this morning. You even being here this morning is a reminder that he's not giving up on you. He is pursuing you. He has a word for you and for me this morning as we get into it. But we have to acknowledge, and we'll get into the rest of the text here in just a moment, that this movement here to delight in the Lord, to be transformed in the image of Jesus it is a battle. Maybe the, one of the ways to think about it is this. Do you remember as a, as a kid engaging in a tug of war, right? Uh, maybe you, you, know, you get the rope out and you get the two sides and there's this pulling. And what we need to see is this, that there are 
you'll feel it. Like you maybe hear it in church service and you're singing the songs, you're reminded of God's goodness and grace and you kind of feel like you're being pulled in the direction of like delight and of radiance and of wisdom. But there are these competing narratives. All the time you and I are being discipled by a message that says you have to perform, that you have to do, that you have to accomplish, that you have to prove yourself over and over again. A message that says, hey, that shame that you you carry, like that is who you are, that defines who you are. That's how people actually think of you. Like you can't can't even bring that to bear. Like don't share that with anybody because you don't know how they're going to respond. And then there's this posture of like hiding. And so there's this competing. You picture the other side of the rope pulling on it saying, let me bring you over here where it's dour and sour and there's no delight. There's no radiance. Let me bring you to this. Now, this image is somewhat helpful, but this still looks kind of fun, doesn't it? I mean, if you you see that, you got the one kid in the front. He looks like he's working, all right? The kids in the back are kind of smiling. Then there's the one further back that's like, I'm going to go get a snack. Just looks like they're walking off, right? Maybe this is a more accurate picture. I mean, picture it more like this in this battle, all right? I mean, these guys are into it, right? I mean, this looks like a fight for their life. Now, why these grown men are this into it is a whole other discussion, but just go with it for a moment, right? I mean, they are leaning in. They are bracing themselves. They know that there's this pull from the other side, the other direction, trying to bring them over. That is a helpful picture of how we live in this world. Even the equip classes we're doing, Eric made mention of it, this kind of contested space that we live in. So how do we move from this place where we're, yeah, we're not delighting, our face is hardened to move to a place of radiance, of of glory, of delight. And so in this particular chapter, I think we are encouraged in three ways, three movements. And I want to, so I want to look at these movements that we see in kind of three different sections to break the text up. All right, so I'll kind of read a section. We'll look at the movement, picture this tug of war, that there's going to be something that's trying to keep you over on one side. And yet the gospel that Jesus is inviting you, and not only is he inviting you, he's actually doing the work through the spirit to bring you over to the side of delight and of wisdom. Not that everything's going to be perfect, but that you can actually trust him. But it is a very real battle. It is not enough to simply be like, okay, cool, I'll go with Team Jesus over here. All right, though that's important, realize there is something pulling against it all of the time. And yet what we will see, I wanna look at each of these three movements and then showcase for you through the scripture, all right, and praying that God's spirit would work, that you would, I would see more clearly how Jesus has fully made this possible, how he's at work, what he has done. And so the first thing I think we see, look with me at verses two to nine. I'm gonna read this. There's a movement here from self, from focusing on the self, the sovereign self is so popular today in our culture, all right, moving from the self to actually a glad submission to God, to his sovereignty, to his purposes. What does it actually look like to be under authority? All right, so let me read verses two to nine, but there's a complexity to this because other than God, no, no ruler, no king, no anybody that's in authority like is perfect, fallen and broken. And so the teacher is looking out over the world and saying, okay, how can I actually be under the authority of somebody that is broken and fallen and messed up Right? What do I actually do there? So we'll pick it up in verse two. It says this, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, or it can also be translated because of your oath to God. Verse three, be not hasty to go from his presence. So don't, don't, don't just flee the situation. Do not take your stand though in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and there is a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Verse nine, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt, meaning to his destruction. So let me ask you a question as we get into this. It's talking about living under the authority of people who are not perfect. And so just think about it for a moment. Like how do you and I, like how do you actually view authority, all right? Now this is talking in the context of somebody who worked directly with the king, all right? But there might be a disconnect for us in there. And so don't just get hung up on that. Just think in life in general, there are authorities that have been put in your life and in my life. And how do we, do we kind of shake our fist at them and be like, no, no, you're not gonna tell me what to do, right? That person at the airport as I'm going to pick up a family member, like they're telling me, I, got, I can't stop here, I can't park here, I gotta drive around and around and around again, right? Like what rises up in your heart when that happens? Maybe you're like, just joy, thank you for serving us and keeping the traffic flowing. If you're like me, I'm like, shut up, I'm here, like, right? That's kind of like the sinful part of me that rises up. How do you handle it when somebody tells you what to do? You see this all the time. It's sad, but you see it in youth sports, right? Did you see the story out in Colorado a couple weeks ago? Brawl broke out. Seven-year-olds are playing baseball, and the umpire was being so critiqued by the parents that this fight broke out. Do you know one of the important details about the umpire? He was 13, right? Like, just give him a break for a moment. Like, he's doing the best that he can. But now parents are fighting. There's literally men hitting other men. There's at one point this guy swings and hits this woman, knocks her on the ground. Just terrible things. You know, that may be a bit more of an extreme example, but there is something in the heart of man that wants to say, nah, I got this. I'll do what I want to do. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. I want to be God. I don't want to be under authority. I want to be in authority. God, you get off the, the throne. You get out of the seat. I want to sit there. You don't have to read very far into the Bible. You see that in Genesis 3. You keep reading. Just keep going to the right. You will start to see within the first 11 chapters of the storyline of the Bible, just the death, the devastation, the destruction that takes place. And not only that, it's not that people are sort of bemoaning it or like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we've gotten into this mess. You'll meet a man named Lamech who literally sings a worship song to himself in pride about how amazing he is and all the things that he's conquered, the people that he's killed and the women that he's slept with. I mean, all these things that take place. It's like, whoa, whoa, how do we handle authority? So look with me. Here's some wisdom that we get. If we want to move from self to this glad submission, we need to realize a few things. And so back in verse 2, Keep the king's command, all right? So there's this call initially, like, be obedient. Don't disobey. Don't look to rebel. Don't try and do this all on your own. God has put authority in your life. And he says, because of God's oath to him or because of your oath to God, and be not hasty to go from his presence is the first part of verse three. Don't just run off anytime somebody tells you what to do, even if you might disagree with it. Like, you're called there to, to serve, to submit. Don't think that you know best all of the time. Luke chapter 20 Jesus encounters this. He's looking out over the crowds. The people are gathering around him and they're looking out and they're like, hey, we're under Roman occupation, Roman oppression. What should we do? And what are Jesus's words? He said to them, 
You want to be wise? You want to follow me? He's like, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He puts that authority is there. He's speaking, obviously, kind of this militaristic, this national level, but in all areas of life. God has set things up in such a way that humanity might flourish as we're under authority. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Think about that. There's no authority except from God. So you can have your political views and you can vote and you should and yes and amen to all of those things. But just at the end of the day, lay your head down on the pillow at night and recognize all authority comes from God. All right. God is sovereign. God is in control. God has this. Like maybe you're anticipating how, you know, our, our culture is going to lose its mind in the next election a little bit. And you're like, oh, what do I just just go back to Romans 13. Just remember, just breathe for a moment. And realize, OK, God ha- has this regardless if your candidate wins or doesn't. Like there's this call here. All right. That all authority comes from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will actually incur judgment. So this is called the submit. Now, if you're like, well, what about certain circumstances? We'll get there in just a moment. But big picture, God has put authority in place. You want to be wise? There's this focus here of like, okay, dying to self, not thinking you are the expert, you're the one to solve everything, that I'm the one to solve everything. But like, what does it look like to actually just submit to the authority that God has put in our life? But he also tells us use discernment. So look at the second part of verse 3 into verse 5. Do not take your stand, though, in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Like, that's a hard thing to say to the one that has ultimate power. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. And so as you think about this, it's not a call to just not engage your brain at all, but to use discernment. Because it does lead to this, that verses 6 to 9 speak of, I'll read this in a moment. Sometimes there's an, the right thing to do is realize, yep, this authority is here by God, but God is the higher authority. And so I need to be obedient to God. And so there's this wisdom in this. So he tells us in verse six, for there's a time and there's a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. It's this reminder, listen, even that, that ruler that thinks he's ultimate, he's one day going to pass away. She one day is going to pass away. All right? They can't have ultimate control. That God is the one that's ultimately in control. And there's this call here where it said in verse 6, there's a time and there's a way for everything. This word for way is this Hebrew word, mishpat, which is, again, this idea of a right ordering. There's justice that the Lord desires. And so we are to be people of justice, and we're to step in. And so he reminds us, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All right, wickedness is ultimately not going to prevail. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when men had power over man to his hurt. Meaning like, there's corrupt rulers, and there's at every level of authority, all right, in all institutions. And sometimes the right thing to do is to actually stand up to that. Not all the time. More than anything, there's this call. And I think in our culture, there's probably more a word that needs to be embraced of like, hey, just submit to it. Realize that God has put authority in your life for good. And yet there are times that things need to be defied. 
you remember this story? I'll read a few of the verses. In the book of Daniel, you have three young men in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, these young Jewish men who have been told that they need to bow down to this, this image that the king, the king Nebuchadnezzar, has, has set up. And word gets to the king that these young men are not bowing down. They are not saying that Nebuchadnezzar is sovereign and that he is all-powerful and that he is to be worshipped as a god. They're like, no, no, there's one true god, and you have power because of that god, and we're going to respect you and we'll work with you and for you and do things. But when it comes down to bowing to you, no, we got to stand up. we got to defy. We're not going to do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, says this, in furious rage... So the most powerful man in the world is now furious with rage. This is not a good situation. Commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so, these, so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. It will be well and good. Things will be good for you. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You see his perspective? (laughs) Who is the God? Like, I am supreme. And so what's their response? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Amazing, the confidence, the boldness, they're like, we know you're the most important man in the land, you have all power, we should be totally intimidated. We're three young Jewish men who've been brought out of our homeland, everything's been destroyed, we've lost everything, but our God can deliver us. That's amazing, but what they say after that is even more so. O king, but if not, even if we are fried to a crisp in this fiery furnace, even if this goes terribly wrong, but if not, Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What a perspective. And so they're living under authority, they're honoring authority, but at the end of the day, when it came to defiling their God, they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. We're gonna defy this king. There's wisdom there. And God rescues them. But I love that perspective, even if he doesn't. And so I want us to think about this. How does the reality of the story that we now know on the other side of the cross and of the resurrection, how does that inform us moving from self and just getting iced, like kind of locked into that enslaved to this you know, focus on self to actually a glad submission? We have to see what the Lord Jesus himself did. The one who, as Philippians 2 talked about, like emptied himself, took on flesh and blood, like moved into the neighborhood. Look at these words of Jesus It's recorded in Luke chapter 22, nearing as he's approaching the cross. He's in the garden, he's praying, and he says, He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So this is hours before Jesus, all right, like is going to be tried and ultimately killed. He's praying. Father, he says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, what is that he's speaking of? It's the cup of the wrath of God that he is going to drink so that it doesn't get poured out on you, but instead gets poured out on on Jesus, right? Like that he would consume all of the the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That's what he's got to drink. He's got to drink all of it. 
And he says, can that pass? Is there any other way? And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And lest you and I think for a moment that this was easy for him, we get these details following by Luke. It says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, all right? So the Lord Jesus, fully God and fully man, there's an angel that comes to help strengthen. This is how difficult this is, the prospect of it and knowing what's coming and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Like I sometimes feel like, oh, that was 15 minutes of focused prayer, man. That was hard work, right? Like I'm not prayed with the earnestness that, my, that I was sweating and that the sweat was becoming drops of blood. That's how intense this is. Now, here's what I want us to see in this. The only way that we move from self to a glad submission is when we realize the God of the universe was willing to step in and say, not my will be done. I'm not here to build my kingdom. I'm here. I'm submitted to the will of the Father, and it's going to cost me everything. And when you realize that Jesus has done that for you, it frees us up. We're no longer then focused on self. We can actually live a life where we're submitted to other people and to service and to other people's purposes, not to go out and just embrace everything, but to also be like, hey, this world, I'm okay submitting. I'm okay with some of the brokenness. I'm not going to lose sleep over this because at the end of the day, I've been freed by King Jesus. The wrath that should have been poured out on me or that I should have been forced to drink, he drank in my place. He took that cup. He submitted. Are you encouraged in that? That's the first movement that we see. Now look at verses 10 to 15. There's a movement then from judging and being in that posture to a movement towards fearing the Lord and ultimately of joy. Verses 10 to 15 say it this way. Then I saw, so the teacher's looking out, all right? So he's kind of looked at the authority, the, the corrupt king, all of that. And he says, then I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised in the city when they had done such things. This also is vanity or that idea of a mist or a vapor. It's meaningless, it's fleeting. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds actually of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And so here's part of his conclusion, verse 15, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Do you see what he's wrestling with here? He's looking out and he's like, okay, can we just start with this? He's like, they're the wicked. They're identified as the wicked in verse 10. There's, um, he says, I saw the wicked buried. And maybe at first glance he's like, okay, yeah, um, they kind of got what was due to them. But then he's that's not really what's happening. He's looking at them and they're getting this amazing procession, this funeral, the eulogies, they're just pouring out. People are praising this person. He's having a hard time. He's like, what in the world? Why is this person being commended? Why are they being praised? He, he's like, just can't make sense of this. And he says, they actually used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised in the city when they had done such things. This is all vanity. He's like, just throws his hands up in the air. He's like, how is it that everyone is praising the wicked? Like, what kind of world do we live in where this is actually happening? 
So maybe the way to think about it is this, like do you ever, because this is what he's feeling, do you ever feel like someone isn't getting the consequences that they deserve? He's like, they should be punished. There should be justice. Will somebody do that? God, where are you? Why is this person flourishing? Why is this person getting this? They're wicked. They're not just neutral. They're actually wicked. And so he's wrestling with that. Have you wrestled with that? My guess there are things, that's the timeless nature of the scriptures. That sometimes we find our heart being like, yeah, I'm in that place of judgment. I know best. I think this is what this person deserves. Well, maybe a way what we need to do when that rears its ugly head is to ask, what if I, what if you got what you deserved? How terrifying a thought is that for a moment? I want to read myself into this, like, yeah, there's those wicked people there, but the scriptures remind me, you know, that I'm in the camp of the wicked, that I'm doing what I want, that there's a rebellion that's taken place where I'm not submitting myself to the lordship of Christ, that I still want to be on the throne. And what if you and I actually got what we deserved? We would get the cup of wrath. That's what we deserve. This week in my Bible reading, one of the, uh, as I'm kind of making my way through the Bible, I, I was finishing the book of Job. Um, and in chapter 42, it's nearing the very conclusion of, of the matter. And Job has lost everything. If you remember the story, you're familiar with it. At one point, he's just like, I just want an audience with God. Right? He's got this kind of boldness. Um, and he's just like, I, I need to ask God, like, what is up? And there's this posture that I think we can all relate to a bit of like, hey, I just, I need to know, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why are these things happening? Those can be good, honest questions, but there also is a slippery slope where we end up in this spot of thinking, I know best, I know what's up. And what we see here at the end, look at verses one to six of chapter 42. Job answered the Lord. Look, look at Job's posture by the end of this. Answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things. His perspective, he's beginning, the, his countenance is changing as he's now focused on the Lord, not on circumstances. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then what is listed here, are these were God's questions. So he's relaying back to God the questions that God asked. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? The Lord had asked Job that. He says, therefore, here's, this, here's kind of the resolution of the matter. Here's the truth that he takes home. He's like, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Then he repeats this question again. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. Or he repeats that statement that the Lord had made. And here's Job's response. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, what's his response to it? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job comes to this spot a very difficult but healthy spot of like, you're God, you are sovereign. You're the one that actually can be in the position of the judge. Who am I to try and judge? Who am I to think that somehow I've, you know, I deserve more, this person deserves this. He's like, he's like hey, if I just look at my life, I don't deserve anything. And so he repents in dust and ashes. What if that characterized us as a church? And so there's this call then as it moves on to Fear the Lord. And then look at verse 15 with me, though. It's a movement then from being in this place of judgment. I'm the judge. I've got it figured out. I know best to actually, no, no, no. When we're there, like, you can't have a posture of judgment and be joyful simultaneously. Those things don't mix together. When you have a judgmental, when I have that judgmental posture and heart, there's a hardness we go back to verse one, there's a hardness to my face, to my countenance, to everything about me. It's like this 
poison that begins to seep in. It's a cancer that begins to, to grow. When I think that, no, I'm the one that should be in charge. I'm the one that's got this figured out. Like, I somehow know better than God. If we want to move towards joy, we need to see the invitation that we're given here. And verse 15 says it this way, and I commend joy. The other way that this can be translated is I commend or I command, I invite you to praise, to worship. That's what the word joy brings up. There's a call in the midst of looking out over a broken world that is fallen, things are not as God would ha- intend them to be, all right, that we live in the, this tension. He's like saying, hey, I commend joy. I commend you to not look at your circumstances or just the particulars of what's going on. Commend you to praise and to worship and to experience joy and to just enjoy the things that the Lord has for you. And so he just looks out very practically and it says, you know, that there's nothing better under the sun. Eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So this invitation, praise and worship, whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the call. Now, here's the question for us that we need to wrestle through. What is your joy like? How is it? Are, would you feel like in this moment, like you are a joyful person? I don't mean that like you're skipping through life and anytime anyone asks you anything, you just kind of put a smile on and be like, it's amazing, it's awesome, right? You don't have to lie, but I'm asking you, and I'm asking myself, is there a deep-seated joy that's not dependent upon circumstances that I can actually enjoy, that I can marvel, that I can look at the things of this world and say, God, thank you for these friendships. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for this drink. Thank you for this experience. And to know what we know that the teacher in Ecclesiastes could only hope for is that there's a reason for ultimate joy is because of what Christ has done. Paul speaks of this in Romans 3. And I would, I need to preach this to my own heart, all right? So if this is just for me, then that's fine. You guys can listen in. But I have to go back to seeing Jesus as the one who had the, he rightfully could be the judge, all right? And yet the judge himself was judged for us. Romans 3 speaks of this. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition for all of humanity. Past, present, future. Anybody who's ever walked the face of this earth, right? Even the cutest little baby that's just been born, like born, fallen from God. Like that's just the reality of the situation. So all are fall short of the glory of God but are justified by his grace as a gift. You don't earn it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the one who's purchased us, he's redeemed us. We were slaves like the people of Israel in Egypt. We were led out of, the, out of slavery, all right? We were being led to the promised land. We were being led to new creation, all of that. That's in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll come back to that in a moment. By his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and this is so key, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God wouldn't be just if he didn't punish sin, but he's also willing to be the justifier by he himself actually dying in our place. And this word propitiation that's used there, sometimes it wants to be softened, I think, and just talk about, well, your sins are washed away. And that is true, but it's more than that. It's this idea of appeasing the wrath of God and then turning it to favor. 
The wrath of God is appeased. It is satisfied that there is an actual wrath that had to be poured out on someone. And Jesus says, here, Father, pour it out on me instead of all of these people, all right? And then turns it to favor so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Now, I can walk around with the posture of judgment until I realize that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm included in that all. And like Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, that should be our disposition. Like, oh yeah, that guy might be bad, but I'm worse. Like, that should be how we think of it. And then God himself was willing to send his son to punish sin, but in doing so, didn't punish us, but punished his son in our place. John Stott speaks of it this way. Why is a propitiation necessary? Well, the pagan answer is because the gods are bad-tempered, subject to moods and fits and capricious. But the Christian answer is because God's holy wrath, it rests on evil. like seeks it out to do away with it. There is nothing unprincipled, unpredictable, or uncontrolled about God's anger. It is aroused by evil alone. According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son, who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Now look at this last line. This is unbelievable. This is what allows us to be joyful people. To move from judgment to joy is when this hits home, not just at an intellectual level, but we are gripped by this. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Think about the profound nature of just that statement. God gave himself. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That's what it's speaking of. So the writer, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is looking out of a broken, a fallen world, finding that his heart's welling up with this judgment, doesn't know what to do with it, isn't rightly even seeing how he's contributing to the mess. But we know that one showed up thousands of years later and is like, no, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to reconcile, I'm going to make a way. The last movement, we'll wrap up with this, the last two verses there's this invitation to move from certainty to mystery. Now, what I don't mean is that everything is uncertain and there's just no, there's, you know, no real truth or however you want to define it. That's not what it's speaking of. But there's this disposition of the human heart that's like, I want to have everything locked down. I want to have everything figured out. I want to just, you know, I don't want to have any more questions. Can I just sort through it? Can I Google enough things and kind of figure this out? Can I read enough books? Look at verses 16 to 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It means there are many things in life I will never be able to explain. You will never be able to explain. You can buy a bunch of books, you can listen to a bunch of podcasts, you can do all those things. I love all those things. But there are going to be some things that we won't, this side of heaven, be able to explain. And our temptation, my temptation at least, is to even want to like, right away kind of want to kind of close it out or maybe say, oh, would this probably happen because of this? Maybe, but I just don't know. And sometimes we get that perspective to look back and be like, oh yeah, this, we can kind of clearly see how God was working. And there are some things I think we'll go to our grave being like, I don't know why that happened. I don't know what in the world was going, but I am trusting that God is good, that God is sovereign, that he has a plan, that I can trust him. And to embrace the sort of mystery that, it's not a mystery to God. There's God's unfolding plan. And there are things that are gonna be mysterious to me. 
But ultimately what matters, what was once a mystery has been made clear. And what we ultimately need to know has been made explicitly clear for you and for me. 1 Corinthians 8, 2 says this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's this kind of pushback on like, hey, you might think you've got it figured out, but if you're walking around that posture of like you're God's gift to just, you know, the world of the, the intellect and you know everything, it's like, no, no, you don't really possess knowledge like you should. Blaise Pascal spoke of it this way. He says, if there were no obscurity, man would not feel his corruption. But if there were no light, man could not hope for a cure. Thus, it is not only right but useful for us that God should be partly concealed and partly revealed, since it is equally dangerous for man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness as to know his wretchedness without knowing God. And what this drives us to is this place of like, by God's grace, we, through the scriptures, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we see our wretchedness, we see our rebellion, and we turn to a God who has made what was once mysterious. There's this mystery that this plan has now been revealed. And so I'll close with this. Here's the, the movement that, yes, we need to embrace mystery in some level, but then also be encouraged that what is of ultimate importance is not a mystery anymore. Colossians 1, 25 to 27, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And here's the language, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What great news that is, that you have Christ in you. You have a new identity because of the finished work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that there was this mystery. How is this all going to resolve? And now Paul's like, I'm a steward of this. I get to tell this story. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get to tell the story, not just to the people out there, but also to remind your own heart, to be around other people that will remind you of this reality, that you can actually know the truth. Ephesians 1, Paul Similarly says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He didn't just give us a little bit or a little drip here, a little just, you know, a little sampling taste. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We have redemption through his blood, very personal. And yet also through the finished work of Jesus, he's gonna unite all things in heaven and on earth. This was the mystery that's been revealed. This is the story that we're part of. You and I don't know everything. We, there's tons of things that we wonder about and we're like lay awake at night trying to solve and trying to figure out, but what if we just rested in that the mystery has been revealed, that you and I have a relationship now with God through the finished work of Jesus. So I want to give us some time just to respond for a moment. We're going to respond through worship and song, prayer. I'll explain some of that more in just a moment. But right now, just take a moment to quiet your heart, to spend some time in prayer. If you need somebody to pray with you, to pray for you, members of our prayer team throughout the rest of the service will be in the back corners. At any point, get up, go seek them out, ask them to pray. Even if you don't have the words to, to utter, you're feeling like, I don't even know how to articulate this, just say, will you pray for me? They would count it a great honor and privilege to do that. But what is the spirit bringing to mind that you need to repent of? Where have you kind of the tug of war has pulled you over onto this side? And then remember, though, what Christ has done, the finished work of Jesus. Then we're going to rejoice together. Let me just pray and then give you a moment to spend in some quiet reflection. Father, thank you.
for your kindness, your grace toward us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that at the end of the day, it's not just a story of us being discipled by the the narratives of the world, that there's a, a way for us to actually find life, to have our face move from this hardness to a a radiant countenance where we reflect your glory and your grace. We thank, we just thank you that you've made that possible. As the Holy Spirit, we would ask in these moments now, as we trust that you have been, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us in repentance, that you would remind us afresh of the good news of the gospel, that this movement that happens is only possible because of the movement that Jesus made toward us, a movement that ultimately took him to the cross, a movement that led to to resurrection and to ascension and that one day Jesus is coming back. Jesus, you're gonna split the sky and you're gonna come back in a new, (laughs) the new heavens and new earth, all of it, we long for it. And yet in the meantime, we just trust that you are at work for your glory and for our joy. So make us more like you. Hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.